So many of you international medical students and graduates have reached out to me to ask about the IMG Roadmap online course. So to meet your demand, I've created a self-paced format of the same seven-module course that is ongoing right now, which is live. And in this course, I teach IMGs how to create their own medical success story. So you learn how to find IMG-friendly programs, how to network, how to find U.S. clinical experience, how to get a strong letter of recommendation, what program directors want to see in your personal statements, how to study and use the resources available for USMLE preparation. I even go into how to fill out the dreaded ERAS application so that you maximize all your experiences and show that forward. Sign up right now at imgroadmap.com slash p slash self-paced. Again, that's imgroadmap.com slash p slash self-paced. You can complete this on your own at the comfort or within the comfort of your own home. And you have my email for consistent support. Guys, I'll see you on the other side. So go ahead and join us. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Christina Dowell. I'm so excited to interview her. I've been following her on Instagram for several months now, and it's just been an, a joy to learn about her story. She's an ophthalmology resident. But before I go into any further ado, I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Christina. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lee. So I... <laughs> I think that it was something that I didn't really expect for myself to do. It was, it was one of those things that if I wanted to do it, I had to do it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew that it had to happen. So I don't know, I guess I'll share. Yeah. yeah. So let's just start from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what medical school you went to? Okay. So I'm from Barbados. I was born and raised, well, born in England, raised in Barbados. And I went to medical school at the University of the West Indies, and I went to the Jamaica campus as well as the Barbados campus for a total of five years. We don't do the college or, you know, component before that. So we start pretty young and finish pretty young as well. So I graduated at 23, did my internship and decided that I wanted to do ophthalmology. And that's where the battle began. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, a, that's amazing that you were able to graduate medical school so young. But tell us about what you did after graduating medical school and how that transitioned into ophthalmology. So after medical school, I did an internship. We do a rotating internship. So peds, medicine, surgery, and OBGYN. And um, I was fortunate to have three electives in ophthalmology. That's the other thing. I think that's something that's different in this medical school. We have a lot of elective periods and subspecialty periods. And so during that time, I really did get a chance to hone on my, my interest and my skills and the area of interest for me, which is glaucoma. And I also found someone who, I, who now has become my mentor and someone obviously who I look up to. And that's where, for me, my passion began 
for ophthalmology, just a simple fact that I wanted to do glaucoma. And that came because after I finished my internship, I worked in ophthalmology in the department. And I noticed with the black predominant society that we have a lot of glaucoma and one glaucoma specialist for the entire island. So needless to say, <laughs> there is a heavy disease burden. And honestly, the prognosis in you know, African-Americans or blacks is pretty poor as it does tend to progress to blindness without immediate and fast treatment. So that's honestly where my passion for ophthalmology grew. And so that's why I say it became a matter of, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but it has to be done. And I think that is what propelled me through my interviews. I think that's what, like, how I, you know, when I networked and I met people, they saw that and they listened to me and they gave me a chance because the truth is, as an international grad, they have like, people don't know about you. They know nothing about you. They don't know your medical school. They don't recognize your training. So it really does come to people taking a chance on you. So after I finished with my ophthalmology position, I decided that, because in all of that, I decided also I wanted to go into academics and have more of a uh, leadership role in the field. So I thought it'd be a good idea, of course, to go to the U.S. and pursue training there. Now, I did not know <laughs> how competitive ophthalmology was here in the U.S. at the time when I made this decision. And um, when I was looking for people to find advice from mentors or just like general advice, just being an international graduate, ophthalmology, whatever, there was no one. I couldn't, there was no one. And the thing is, I actually did an international captain course where they have medical advisors and they have people and, you know, attendings and so on and so forth who are in those positions to guide international graduates. And unfortunately, I didn't have that kind of support. But what it did do is give me a good foundation for studying, of course, and the material and, you know, how to get the scores and so on and so forth. Because I think as an international graduate, you don't, like, at least for me, this, was a, this exam was a completely different beast. This is nothing I've ever done before. <laughs> I mean, biochemistry was one of those things, like, oh, crap cycle, okay, cool. <laughs> but never in my life did I think that I have to learn so much detail. Um, for me, in my country, we're very clinical-based. We don't do much time in basic sciences. So step one for me was an uphill battle, to say the least. It, it felt like I was learning something completely new. I've never done it before. And it was very anxiety provoking for me, knowing that there was so much on the line and um, I still didn't know how I was gonna get it done. So I moved to New York briefly to do the course. And during this time also, cause I was back and forth. So I had to, I was working of course, because to live in New York or stay there for a prolonged period, obviously I had to support myself. I was fortunate I don't have medical student loans, but my earnings and my savings, this is what I was pouring into this journey for, you know, to come here to the U.S. and so on. And I didn't know if this was even going to work because everyone told me it was impossible. For ophthalmology, it was like, I've never heard anyone do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. Like that was, that was pretty much all the feedback I, I got. There was, there was nothing else. <laughs> Nothing positive, just good luck. So it was, it was, it was definitely nerve wracking. And for me, and I, I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way, but I think that I was my, like I was my worst enemy when it comes to the step one, because it's such a daunting feeling to put everything into one exam. I mean, now it's changed the step one, you know, the score doesn't matter, but it's a very daunting feeling to know that this will either make or break you. And this is just the first step. And, um, 
you know, I studied the material over and over again and, you know, would go through it and go through it. And I kept delaying and pushing back the exam. And eventually I was just like, you know what, I'm at the decompensated part of this slope. Like I'm going to start going downhill from here. My score is not going to get any better. Like either I do it or I don't. And that was one of the most, that exam, I will tell you, <laughs> it was one of the hardest things, not because of the questions, it, like your mental game. The thing is like most, you know, you can study first aid, you can do you world, but you, the real test in the exam is you, like how strong your mental like attitude is. Because if you go in there unsure or lacking confidence, like that will be your worst enemy. And for me, that's what it was. I walked out after the fourth block and I called my mom. I was just like, I'm sorry, I, I'm not getting the score I want. I, I think I'm going to leave this exam now. And the next block, after the fifth block, I called her again. She said, Christina, just do it. They said, if you don't, if you leave now, it's going to count as a fail. And I said, well, I can't have that on my record. <laughs> so I marched back in there, finished the exam, and I was mortified. I got my score. I was not happy with my score. Uh, in ophthalmology, there's a cutoff. Usually it's like 245 to 250, somewhere around there. And I was below that. So for me, I was just like, well, what do I do now? I basically just shot myself in the foot. Do I just go back to doing private practice? Because I was doing GP work and I was doing pr um, private ophthalmology and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a pretty good life. Like you make, you make your money, you have flexible hours. I did locum, so I was able to move around. I can take vacation, obviously, whenever I wanted. And, you know, I was, I was really trying to sell myself on the idea that life would be pretty good back in Barbados to say, yeah, life's a beach, you know, just chill. And I wasn't happy with that because, again, for me, the reason why I wanted to go into it in the first place was that I didn't like to see the people, I didn't like to see people suffering. And I went back to working in the field where I saw people suffering. And I just felt like, you know what, the, you know, like the show isn't over. I still, I can still try so I went back to the U.S. and did my step two. This time I didn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't as emotionally invested as before. And so in terms of like the anxiety and so on, it wasn't as bad. And my score was actually a lot better. <laughs> my score is a lot better. So that's why I say it's all about mental, you know, aptitude. And I decided, okay, well, maybe I can try with this because it was much better than my first score. And maybe people will kind of look past the first one. And it just so happened at the, around the same time, because I was juggling between doing my private, pra my private practice work, doing exams, and then also I, I decided to, to work with my mentor and doing research in ophthalmology and start working on the academic positions within the field. So it was a lot that I was juggling at the time. Oh, yes, and bodybuilding. So that was another thing, because I traveled a lot for that, and I had very strict regimes. So I decided I was going to go to, someone brought it up to try going to Baskin Palmer to do an observership. And I thought, well, I've never heard of this place. Sure, I'll do it. It's right in Miami. It's not far from Barbados. I'll give it a try. And it turns out Baskin Palmer is the number one institution in the United States. You see, like these things that seem so obvious to U.S. grads, I had no idea. I had no idea this is the number one program in the U.S. in ophthalmology. And I just happened to stumble across it and was given a position for six weeks to go there and shadow people. Now, an observership means that you literally cannot work with patients. So for me, it's like I didn't have the, the chance, the opportunity to actually display any of the skills which I'd learned in Barbados. So it was kind of like, well, how do I impress these people? Because the thing is, they don't, here in the U.S. as an international graduate, they don't know where to place you, which category. 
And so you really do have to build somewhat of a reputation for yourself very quickly. And it's very hard to do that when you spend like maybe two days with someone and they're supposed to vouch for you. Because at the end of the day, as an international graduate, you need someone to vouch for you. You need someone to put their name behind you with their institution, especially like, you know, things like ophthalmology where they're very, it's a very close knit. I'm telling you, everybody knows everybody. And so you need someone who's going to be willing to pick up the phone for you. You need someone who's going to be willing to put your name on email, give you an LOR, not just any LOR, an outstanding LOR. And so I stumbled across going to Baskin Palmer. <laughs> and I remember I, I walked in and they were like, you know, what do you do? Like, what do you do for fun? And I told them bodybuilding. So that's for me kind of how I stood out to them. They were like, who's this girl from Barbados, this little island in the Caribbean who does bodybuilding? And she's here to do ophthalmology and all this stuff. It was kind of like, that was my, my, my story. I came with my, you have to develop a package for yourself. Right. You have to, you know, like, you have to have a story that people hook on to, something that makes you stand out. Like people say, oh yeah, I do research. I did this project, I did that project. They're like, you did bodybuilding? I was like, yeah. They're like, this, you, this little person? Like, yes. <laughs> you know, like it definitely generates a conversation. And once you get that camaraderie with people, you know, you can suck them in. Like you, right. you, they want more about you. And yeah. that's out the other stuff, you know? And the thing is for me, I didn't think about it too much at the time. I just thought like, I just like people, I like talking, I like making friends. And I think, again, like now fast forward a year, uh, two years now I've been doing this, networking has been one of the things that people take for granted and don't understand the art of doing it. I call it doing the dance. But I'll talk about that a little bit more. So I went to clinic and they told me, don't go to this person. She doesn't like to have, you know, she only takes fellows, like that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't. And I ended up going to shadow another doctor. And so he told me he was going to clinic on Saturday. And I said, well, sure, I'm going to go. And I don't think he expected me to be there because no, like none of the residents were there. It was just him in clinic alone. So we obviously had a lot of time to spend together in which he got to know me. And again, of course, the story comes up and they say, oh, you're from Barbados. And they go, you know, people want to know, like, what, what is this little island in the Caribbean? And of course, me being, you know, prideful Barbadian slash, you know, Bajan, we can talk for hours about the culture, cultural differences, the healthcare differences. Like, there's just so many things that are interesting when you come from a different culture. Like, that is your, I think as an international graduate, people here in the U.S. don't understand or don't have the concept of things outside of the U.S. So anything different is it's pretty novel if you understand what I'm saying. So things that you take for granted, you know, in your country are very interesting to other people. So you, you have to, I think like for me, I felt bad because I'm like, I don't understand this culture here. I don't feel like I fit in. And I felt like I was trying to mold myself into things where, you know, that just doesn't work because you're still going to be you and you're going to either, if you, your discomfort is going to show. So I think it's just good to bring what you like, bring your package to the table, bring your differences to the table bring your different perspective. And that's exactly, you know, what happened. And so like, and it's interesting. So I didn't think like me talking about where I'm from and stuff like that would mean anything to him, but he was just like, this is really interesting. I know just the person who you need to meet. She, she's, she's doing a project in the Caribbean and she would love to hear your input. And I was just like, oh, sure. And it turns out it was the same person who uh, the coordinator told me not to do, to go with because she only takes fellows. So she was like this big shot person. Who again have no idea <laughs> about anything and I met her and she was just the sweetest person 
and we hit it off immediately. And I want to remind you that this was a very odd, like up to, like to this day, we're still friends. We texted each other earlier. We go out for drinks. Like, you know, she's my mentor and she's also my friend. She's almost like a second mother to me at this point. And it's funny because we're so different. We're different, but still very similar. So, you know, my background, as I said, I'm black Caribbean from a black predominant country. And she's, you know, here in the US, she's one of the top professors in her program in ophthalmology white, blue eyes, like that kind of thing. Very beautiful person, inside and out. And we just hit it off. So, but the thing that we did have in common is that we are kind of idealistic in some ways. And so she was drawn to my passion for why I wanted to go into ophthalmology. She was drawn into, you know, how hard I worked and the hours I put in. Like there was nothing that she told me to do that I would not do. And it wasn't because I was trying to, you know, gussy up or anything I just felt like everything that she was standing she stood for I stood for as well and so I threw my heart and everything into it and it turns out we ended up doing a really huge project together she was looking into screening children in the Caribbean for eye disease and I mean like from glasses to to cancer and that's yeah and it was you know and that's why she had such an interest in me because Barbados is one of the, it's one, like I said, it's where the medical school is. It's one of the, the islands where the medical school is situated. And it's also the most developed of the islands. So having me who works in ophthalmology as well, you know, someone who's passionate about, like genuinely passionate about helping and furthering development in healthcare was a big plus for both of us. And I didn't think, I didn't, when I started working with her, I wasn't thinking of, of gaining anything from it apart from helping. I didn't think about how this would go towards my red. I just knew that I loved being involved with this program and with her and this project. That's all I was thinking about. I wasn't trying to, you know, like get ahead or, you know, like show good face. It was genuinely just that we both had the same vision and we both went for it. And I'm just going to say something right there because I really want our audience to learn from your story that passion shines through. And authenticity will take you a long way because when you share this part of your journey, I just hear an authentic love for the specialty. There was no mimics, no games. You wanted this so bad. You came here to learn. You threw yourself to it. You were just being your true self. So I really want us to learn from your character, for everybody listening, that character can take you a long way. How you act, how you behave, those things do create likability with the people that you meet and you just never know who would end up being that mentor for you or that light or that guide so just be yourself but also be very authentic in what you want out of life i really just wanted to share that with the audience dr dowell but please tell us more <laughs> well that's exactly the point and so when i say i feel lucky because all the things that i did i felt like anybody would do Given if they were in the same situation, to me, it's like, of course, you're going to do this. And of course, you're going to do that. Of course, you know, you're going to meet these people and do, you know, like all these things seem very obvious to me. And but I think that when I look back, I didn't realize how much work I put in just because of how much I loved it. And like just being with this group of people who had the same, who shared the same vision, same drive. I felt like I was at home. So when I left there, I mind you, I only spent I, I only spent three weeks with her during that time. I met her during the third week of my observership and I, I ditched the rest of it and I just spent the rest of the time with her. It was really emotional when I left. Just in three weeks, I felt like they were family. Like she was family. Like we, we've grown so close 
we had so many plans and I didn't know what to expect after that. Remember, I only did my, my step one, my step two. Like I wasn't feeling confident with my step one. I was still kind of like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no plans, nothing. And I don't know what my next step is going to be. And she said, don't worry about it. I'll see you soon. It was like, we, like we both kind of like shed a tear, a tear when I left at the airport. And I went back to Barbados thinking like, was this all a dream? Am I kidding myself? Am I, what just happened there? And now I realized I had nothing. I did my step one, step two, but I had nothing else. You know, my CV was pretty much blank for the most part. I mean, like, yes, medical school, maybe a few little like data collection projects, whatever. But research wasn't something that we focused on in med school. That's just not how our system works. So in comparison to what a U.S. grad would have, I was very deficient. And so I didn't even want to apply. I remember it was November or so, and the ophthalmology cycle starts in October and ends in December. So I thought, well, maybe I can push in my application and give it a go. And she told me not to do it. She told me not to do it. I was still in Miami, and she said, don't do it. Um, we're going to get something better for you. Just trust me on this. And I, <laughs> if it wasn't her, I, and the thing is, again, three weeks, if it wasn't her who said it, I would have been like, oh my gosh, I'm so screwed. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I did. And so just a month later, she flew me back up to Miami. She paid, like she paid, I became a consultant for the, the, this project. Um, I was given a title. I was given a role. I was the liaison for the Caribbean division for the screening program, which was about to be implemented in the university and in islands and in university institutions on each island, starting with Barbados. So it was, it was a huge, not only is it a big deal for me, but it's actually a huge thing for the Caribbean. Screening for children does not even exist in the U.S. for eye disease. It does not exist in the U.S. And how we planned on doing it was ingenious and innovative, specifically for the Caribbean. And so that's why the beauty of the project, you know, it was just like a win all around. And I just so happened to, I'm pretty well connected in Barbados. I, like I said, I worked in ophthalmology. My godfather is a pediatric ophthalmologist, you know, so it was just like I fit perfectly into this plan and I just kept working with her for the next year and a half or so. And I, like I said, I didn't really think much of it. Now, fast forward to application season. By this time, it had been about a year since I'd known her. And I spent a lot of time in Miami because I'd worked, I was, mind you, I was still doing three jobs because I still had to maintain, even though like she paid for travel and so on through her organization, I wasn't getting paid for the work I was doing. So I still had to support myself and I was doing concierge medicine. And again, that allowed me some flexibility because I'd work a couple hours a day and concierge medicine is, is pretty flexible. And so on top of that, I was still doing research and uh, with my, my mentor in Barbados and I say mentor so frequently now because before I met this lady in Miami, I never knew what the word mentor meant. She called her, she designated herself as my mentor. And she asked me, do you know what that is? And I said, no. And she says, well, I see myself in you and I'm going to help you. I'm going to, you're going to grow. I'm going to help you to grow. And you're going to, you know, you're going to be successful because this is your passion and this is going to be an amazing opportunity for the people who you work with in the future, as well as for yourself. So she was more her, I think for her, because mind you, she's in her 60s. She's well into her. She's very senior in her field. And I think for her, she had the bird's eye view of what she envisioned for me before I even envisioned it for me. She had that for me. So when it came to application season in 2019, like she wrote me an LOR before that, but she rewrote it again. She said, no, I have an even better one for you now. I've known you for longer. 
she ripped it up and she started over again. And it was, I didn't even read it. Um, she sent it to me like maybe halfway through um, the application season. Maybe I think it was like before one of my interviews where I called her and I said, I'm nervous. And she said, do you want to know what I wrote on your LOR? She told me. And she, I felt like she had more faith in me than I had in myself. And that's why I say like, you can get the scores, you can do the research, but you need someone who believes in you. Like, honestly, that's, she, a like I, that's definitely a true mentor right there. Yeah. And honestly, she was, an, she's an amazing, like I said, she's an amazing person. I will not stop <laughs> giving her praise. And she put in the work for me. Like, let me tell you, she used to call me when we first met, we went to a huge conference in ophthalmology and I was there darting around meeting everyone. You know, she's like, Christina, you're like a racehorse. You know, you need to, need to be reined in. I love your passion and your energy, but we need to polish you up and represent you, <laughs> repackage you. And, you know, and she, she's like, you're like a little rat. And I was like, I'm like a rat. And, you know, it was funny because I thought, like, what does this mean? You know, like, what is she saying? This is a bad thing. But you know what? That's when I learned you have to take constructive criticism. And I think because, it, because of our relationship, it, it was that much, it meant that much more to me. So even though it was her saying like, okay, you just have to polish up or you just have to, you know, recreate your package. I took it as, oh no, she doesn't like me. But if you have a good mentor who really does back you, they will give you that tough criticism only because they actually want you to be better. Because at the end of the day, their name is behind you. You are now a representation of them. So it's not just a matter of you're doing this for you. you also, you're also doing this for them too. And you're also doing this for the people who come behind you, who they back. Because if I brought, if I brought someone to her and I said, I like this person, this person is someone that you would like, I think you should work with her. And she'd take that person and work with them and say, you know what? You're right. Or she'd be like, well, you're kind of wrong on that one. But the point is that you create a path for somebody else as well. And I'm very mindful of that. So for me, I always wanted to do not the best job, not just for me, but anyone who came after me. So interview season was rough. Um, she also advised me, you know, here's the plot twist. She also advised me to come to Miami to do a surgery internship. Now, <laughs> and the reason why she wanted me in Miami is that so we can continue working together. Now, I did not know, because I did surgery in Barbados, and I did not know that surgery in the U.S. was as difficult as people. I was like, you know, I, did, I used to work hard. You know, we've done internship, whatever. It was as hard as it was. I'm now, this is now, I've been out of med school now six years. I'm not like as young as I used to be when I did my internship. And um, the hours were rough. And it's not just that the hours are rough. Demand from you is that much higher, adjusting to the U.S. Pro, to U.S healthcare system, culture, living. I mean, I've lived on my own before, but you know, it was just, it was just a completely different things that I don't think about or would have to think about in Barbados or, you know, I have to think about here. This very mundane things, whether it comes from like paying bills or setting up bank accounts, these things all kind of take you, they take a little while, while to adjust. Even working with an EMR, we don't use an EMR in Barbados. So even that in itself was kind of like, oh wow. Different practices in medicine, for sure, very, very different. So it's almost like you, you're thrown into a fire and you're, you're, you're like, okay, just, just, just relax and you know, work. <laughs> so I felt like that was a huge adjustment. And then on top of that, I, cause I was now applying for ophthalmology. I didn't apply the previous year. 
because I spent the time building my CVU, doing some research, working on the projects, making connections, getting more LORs. And that's exactly what I did. Through working on the project, I met so many chairs, vice chairs, attendings at very well-known programs across the U.S. I traveled to Vanderbilt. I met people at Emory, um, Duke, you know, all these top places for ophthalmology. And I earned those, and I say earned now and with confidence because now in retrospect, I realized that these people were genuinely impressed with me when they met and worked with me. These were people who literally got on the phone and called people. Even if they couldn't help me, they found someone who could help me. You know, that's honestly what it takes. When it comes to, when you don't have a CV or you don't have the scores you want or you don't, you feel like you're lacking in some way, you need people on your side. People, those direct program directors want to know that that you are known because they need to be able to reference you. They need to, to put you into some kind of category where they can now judge you in a way that you can't be judged before that because they don't know your medical school. They don't know your training. But if they hear that, oh, this person wrote this LOR, she works with this person from Vanderbilt, or she worked with this person from Duke and Baskin Palmer, now they kind of have a picture of you. And they're like, is this someone who I'd like? And they say, yes, that's your shot in the door. That's how you get those interviews. This is that getting interviews is a lot to do with networking and who you and who you know. And I'm sorry to say that when someone told me that when I was coming through and they said, oh, the score does matter. Like, that's what kind of makes them open your application. You know, they guess there's a minimum and now it's changed, but there's a minimum score, but it's really about who you know, who believes in you, and who's going to vouch for you. And as much as I didn't want to believe that, it is 100% true. Yes, there are people I met on the trail. I met people, IMGs, who got scores of like 171, and they didn't match. You know, I just want that to sink in. <laughs> I want that to sink in. And these people also worked at Baskin Palmer doing research, so people, so that's the other thing. I was told, I was given the option of, you know, working with this, my mentor or doing a non-funded research year or potentially two years at Baskin Palmer in which that's what most people do, but obviously it's still not guaranteed. It means that you could get an interview at Baskin Palmer, but it doesn't mean that they'll give you a position because notoriously there are programs, sad to say again, that do not take international graduates. And that's the other thing. I didn't know any of that information before I only learned that during the applications and interview season when I literally called almost every program and my mentor was like, Christina, don't do that. And I said, okay, I won't. But there were quite a few programs, <laughs> which I still call to find out if they took international graduates because there's not much data for ophthalmology with international graduates. As if anyone's interested in ophthalmology, you know, very little data. If there's any, if, which is, there are not many that take international grads or not many who offer visas, the J1s, the H1Bs, whatever the case may be. So that was something that I had to call and do my own research for. Um, I had, you know, of course, everyone does it. They have their spreadsheets. They, and then I had a color coding system, how many times I called, who I emailed, who I sent letters to, you know, uh, continued interest, like all that stuff. And all that I was doing during my surgery internship, which again, was not the easiest thing to do, <laughs> given that you're already sleep deprived on surgery plus doing interviews. And you know, I ended up getting nine interviews. Now as an international graduate, you usually get two or three interviews. Nine interviews was seen as, that's like how much US grads get or more than what US grads get. And I almost felt like when people asked, I, I didn't want to say <laughs> because it's kind of like, how did you do that? And I'm like, I, don't, I, I was lucky. And I am a Christian and I genuinely believe I am blessed in that regard 
because Lord knows I could not do it on my own. There's no way. Who told me to go to clinic on Saturday? Who told me to meet this lady? Who told me to talk about Barbados? Who told me to put in the work that I did? You know, it's like there were so many things that I felt were just too good to be true and too many things that just happened to align. And that's why I've honestly found it difficult to give people advice. But I think the real thing that shines through, because everybody, once you get that interview and before you even get that interview, what really shines through is your passion and your drive. People can lead you out very easily. And I felt that way when I met people on the interview trail. So even that person who got that score of 171, there wasn't much, and I, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't like to say anything negative about people, but what I will say is that I didn't get much character from her, you know, like I didn't get like there was a genuine desire to do something. It was kind of like, because ophthalmology is very notorious for having, you know, good life and money, whatever. And so that's generally what attracts people to the field. And so you really need to go, not really go above and beyond, but you really do need to demonstrate that there's something else that you bring to the table. Something else that you're going to create the leg, continue and create a legacy at this institution. And that's what I'm saying. When you're an international graduate, you have a different perspective, a different way of thinking that sometimes people don't realize. And that is actually your niche. That is what you have to bring to the table. That's how you package yourself. You have a, this you rebrand re yourself and say, look, this is what I've done. This is what I want to do. And this is my, my vision. And you have to tie it into how this will work for the program. You have to, it's not just saying, oh, I like, I like this program because the academic and the didactics are this and the, the surgical numbers are that. No, no, no. You have to tell them, look, this is what I've done. This is what I want to do. And I want to do it with your name behind it. They want, I, like these programs now, these universities, they want to create, they're all in competition. And that's the other thing. I learned how the, the healthcare system works while I was here in this past year. It's not about, it's all about, you know, who has, who has this prestige and you can use that to your favor. I just wanted to, it's just to interrupt and ask a question because you mentioned, there was something about what you said before, I don't want us to forget it, which really speaks to the character that we carry when we present ourselves during the networking process, which I like that when you share your story, I hope everybody listening can really identify how your character got you this far as much as your hard work. So you didn't only put in the work, but you also showed up in a way that showed your passion, showed the character, humility, and these are the traits that cause people to be attracted to who you are and to learn more about the potential that you carry so that they can help you you know, achieve your goal. But you did mention something that you worked with other students who had maybe even better scores. Did you mean a 270 or a 170? Because I'm trying to just clarify that score. Uh, trash yeah, sorry. 270. yeah, 270. And I was just like, that's insane. <laughs> I was like, how? Yeah. You know, they just let you hear about like these stories and you're like, that's not real. No, there she was standing right in front of me. And I think we were, we had two interviews um, together. She ended up having, I think, three interviews in total. And um, two out of those three, we had it together. And it was like, how, she, because she asked me, how many did, did you have? And I, I felt, in, like, especially after she said she had two, she got a 270. I was just like, uh, nine. <laughs> and she's like, what? <laughs> I didn't, I think it was only at that point when I realized how, just how, I mean, like, I, I trust me, I believe I was very fortunate, but just how fortunate I was just having someone who believed in me. Like, I cannot stress that enough. Like, I would not be here 
without my mentor. I 100% believe that without a doubt. Maybe I would have had one or two interviews. Maybe, I don't know. But I don't know. I, I think that just having those LOR, even if even if she didn't, you know, advocate, because they're obviously they're she's not gonna there's only certain things like when you have a mentor who's gonna email someone that they know or call someone that they know, they're not gonna do that forever. They're gonna do that for one or two programs at most. Because they are basically telling them like if you like this person, they will, you know, you know how it goes. Like you <laughs> it's just how it works. And so you don't wanna put out, they're not gonna put everybody out, sorry, they're not gonna put you out to every program. So you really have to know which program you're going for and put in that work. So before I go on and more into that, I actually want to backtrack and tell you. So I had my mindset. My first, when I went to this, this conference in ophthalmology, I met up with the chair and the program director of Howard University. And I was sold on Howard. I mean, I love Howard. I, I love DC. Like the whole premise of working in a predominantly black state was just very learning to me and I made up my mind there and then that was the program I wanted to do to go to mind you again I still don't know much about all because I don't know how these programs I'm not interested in how these programs rank as far as I'm concerned I just want to go practice learn and enjoy myself that's what I'm looking for I'm not looking at oh this program is number one none of that appeals to me at all and that's like not long ago this is this was how I felt up until January when I had to submit my rank list so <laughs> Um, it's not for me. It was just about just getting it done. At the end of the day, I felt like I'd be trained wherever I went and it wasn't that big a deal. But I decided I was set on Howard and that was one of the first interviews I, I got. That was the first interviews for the season I got. And I got it at that conference. They said, oh, we like you. Are you interviewing at our program? And I was like, well, I haven't received an interview. And they, you'll get an interview. And I was like, great. So <laughs> I was ecstatic because I was starting, it was like, I think that was mid-October. I was starting to feel down because I hadn't had any interviews yet. And I told them, you know, I would love to, because at this time, I, the reason why I was at this conference is because I was presenting on the same project that I worked with, with my mentor. And of course, they were very interested in that because, again, Howard and DC being a predominantly Black place, they do have a lot of Caribbean people and Caribbean connections, and they do a lot of community work. So they were very interested in what the, the project I was in and how they can even either get involved or mimic in another area. So that was how they were drawn into me. And I told them at that, when I was at this conference, I said, well, I'm currently doing my surgery internship, but I have a two week vacation in December. I'd really love to do an away rotation because I understood at this point that a lot of US grads or you know, US medical students do away rotations, which I didn't know about. I just, again, I just happened to stumble upon that observership in Miami. And I thought, okay, sure. So I didn't really plan on doing any away rotations, but since being here, I said, well, let me try and increase my chances. I really want Howard. I'm going to put in the work and this is what I'm going to invest my time. So I have, we have two weeks of vacation and I spent two days out of that vacation doing interviews. And the rest of the time I spent in DC working in the ophthalmology clinic. And everyone thought it was ludicrous because <laughs> in surgery, you don't get time to, you know, like you're already sleep deprived. It's hard. You, like anyone would cling to a vacation and for me, I thought, this is the only, I'm not here to do surgery. I'm here to go into ophthalmology. This is a stepping stone for me. And it was a very non-traditional way because most people would not do a prelim year in another specialty, only knowing that they'd have a year in the field. So I had that, this was the set time I had to network and stay in the U.S. legally for, you know, my visa and actually support myself while making those connections and working on this project and so on and so forth. 
And everyone, again, like from people who gave me advice within the U.S. said that it was crazy I would even do an internship here because it would be frowned upon for multiple reasons, which I won't go into too much, but it would be frowned upon. And they said that I made my, my road a lot more difficult. And I felt like, well, how can you see it? You can, either have, you can either, have, either have the perspective of the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. Because in my mind, I'm like, if I do this prelim year, ophthalmology is in an advanced match position. I could go into PGY2. Or if I didn't you know, match, I can always try again and go for PGY1 um, and do another prelim year. But again, with visa issues, and I won't go into the detail, you can only switch once. And there were some complications and I really, it, it just came down to the fact that I was again, very, 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 very lucky because the programs in ophthalmology decided to, to merge their prelim year with medicine. And so I, when I went to this interview, some of them would tell me that you have to repeat a year. And of course, after doing this, you know, this is like halfway through my surgery year and I'm just like, this is hard. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm, I'm used to working hard. I don't, like, I enjoy it. Like, I'm passionate about it. Like, I see, like, why I'm doing this. But I'm not going to lie. Surgery internship was hard. I'm post-call right now and I'm exhausted. And this is just, it's just what it is. So the idea of having to do another prelim year, potentially, with, you know, that kind of, and just, again, being a female and I'm, I'm almost 30. I'm also thinking about like settling down and having a relationship and having a family. I just felt like I'm constantly moving throughout my entire adult life. I've been moving Jamaica, Barbados, New York, Barbados, Miami. I don't know where I'm going to go next. You know, it's hard to set roots. And so as a female, that is definitely something. And my mentor told me about that too. And that's what I'm saying. You need to you find a mentor who thinks about everything because she thought about that before I thought about that. But anyways, I won't digress. The point is that it was, my route was very, very, very non-traditional. And so I ended up matching into a program where they did include a prelim year. So I actually do have another year to do. And then I'll be going into ophthalmology, but the ophthalmology is integrated into this prelim year. So I say all of that to say that I knew what I signed up for. I sacrificed the time. I... Because I knew, and it's funny, so the program I actually ended up matching into and putting ranking as my number one is not Howard, even though I spent my vacation at Howard. And during that, that way rotation, it, that's the other thing I want to talk about a little bit. I wasn't just a student there, or functioning as a student there. I was at, functioning as a resident. I was seeing patients, writing because I was, I, because I worked in ophthalmology before, I was able to actually display my skills now because I could see patients. And they were very impressed. And not just that I could display my skills, but it also gave me the opportunity to demonstrate to them how I interact with patients. And I think that's honestly what won them over between that and the, you know, my, the potential that they felt I had with regards to how I, you know, how passionate I am and how I spoke about the project. And just for me, like I'm an, I'm an idea person. I have, I like to, I'm a, like, I think like in medicine or women in general, like we, we tend to be problem solvers. And so you know, whenever something comes up and I always have some way of saying like, well, why don't we try this? Or why don't we try that? And I think like that, building that relationship with them and them understanding who I am, my character is what led them to really like me at Howard. And so I really did like the program. It was a very, 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 very difficult decision to make. I changed my, my rank list like six times within the five minutes. Never do that. <laughs> Never, <laughs> never change your rank list within a few minutes of submitting. Always go with what you actually want to do. 
which you set your mind on before that. Do not do what I did. But I changed it five times within like the, the, the five minutes left to submit my rank list. And I ended up putting Mount Sinai as number one. And I put it as number one. And I was juggling between that because I did not want to have to do that year again. And so I was juggling between that and Howard. And I, there, there were other programs that, I, that were really top notch. And the reason why I decided to put the programs that were ranked higher in the U.S. is because I realized that I, if I were to want, because for me, like I said, I want to go into academic position. If I want an academic position, it would make sense for me to go to a higher ranked academic institution because then I can still do potentially like an, uh, you know, like a professorship or whatever at these programs. So you have to, I think like when you're making a rank list as an international graduate as well, you have to also see where you fit in. So for me, Mount Sinai is in New York. I'm comfortable with New York. They have a lot of people who are international there. And so I definitely wanted to go to somewhere where I felt like I would feel comfortable at least. If it wasn't going to be DC, I wanted to feel, because it's your spending, you're doing your residency now. Now you can, people say that, yes, it's just going to be a few years and you just have to get over it. It doesn't matter where it is. But I was fortunate to have an option. So that's for me what I decided. And I remember when I matched, the program director called me and said, we are a non-traditional program because this, this program is a known program, but emerged for the first time this year and then they integrated medicine into it. So it was a pretty, what they're doing is pretty novel. So when he called me, he said, this is a new program and we're, we're very non-traditional and you're non-traditional and we see a lot of potential in you and we're very, very excited to have you with us. And that, I remember, I remember standing in, like it was in the call room at the hospital and I remember my hand was like shaking because I was in shock. <laughs> like I was in complete shock because what I thought at the beginning of my journey was just me being, you know, idealistic or banking on something that was impossible or like my reasoning for why I wanted to do what I did is what actually got me into my number one program and having the program director call me and tell me that like it meant it was in that moment everything came full circle and I'm still getting goosebumps to this day when I think about it everything came full circle and I like I said it is a lot of to me I felt like it was a lot of luck I felt like I don't know how I did it I mean I, I just told you what happened but when people ask for advice the generic stuff is always going to be do well on your exams do research get a mentor like that's, I think like everyone who applies to Optho or any program has that on their CV. Everyone has that on their application. They'll do like volunteer work, you know, whatever. Oh, you know, in their personal statements, they'll talk about why they wanted to do ophthalmology and they want to help people and the community and the diversity and whatever. Everyone has that same story. So you have to really, it's getting harder. It seems like it's getting harder to find your niche and your package, but Whenever I went into an interview, I would tell them exactly as I wouldn't, I never practiced, I, I never practiced for an interview. I, I mean, that's up to you. I felt like it would change the authenticity that how I presented myself, because that for me was how I want, I wanted to genuinely feel me. I wanted them to actually feel me, my presence and why I'm doing this in that room. I didn't want to sound like I rehearsed this or I thought about it before. Like if they asked me a question, I generally didn't know the answer to it. I said, that's a good question. That's, I never thought of it that way. I met, someone asked me a question that was, you know, like that. I said, I never thought of it that way. I actually don't know. But, and then, you know, you kind of like, like those things, they, your genuine person, that like your character 
has, has the opportunity to shine through because it's not rehearsed. They can tell when you, they look at your, your gesturing, your posture, how you, you know, your gaze, everything like that. When you, you make, when you pause and say these things, like that's where your real, the real person, the real you shows through. And for me, that's what I wanted to bring to, to it as well. Because what I'm, what I'm selling them on is my potential. I can't sell them on what I've done. My CV was still lacking compared to others in research and all these things. So I, I told them, that I was very honest. I said, look, my program, my university does not focus on research. All the research that you see on that CV is what I started since being here in the U.S. for less than a year. That is the amount that I was able to produce in less than a year. This project that happened within less than a year. If I had the opportunity to stay here longer and go to your program with all the resources and everything that you have, I would have a field day. I would have, I would enjoy myself. We can, the thing is, again, you have to package yourself. So for me, I had to sell them on my potential. I had to sell them on my vision, my dream. I had to sell them on why I, I wanted to have, I wanted to lead the way with their name behind me so that we can create this new legacy together, you know? And so you have to find a way to reel them in and, to me, I think that that's only something I learned since being in the U.S. Like there has to be a symbiotic relationship. This is everybody wants to do residency. Everybody wants to get in. Yes, you do residency. You become resident. You do whatever. But what are you giving back? <laughs> and I think that's where you can you have the potential to differentiate yourself. So for me, I want to go into academics as well. I said I would be very interested in doing like a partial, you know, professorship or whatever, or a, you know, you know, whatever the case might be because I want to create a partnership between here and another institution. And I want to create this project that we can both share and work on together. So that was to, that's how I kind of branded myself. And I, again, you have to make sure that it is a genuine thing and it is real, that you're not, you can't be just talking. You have to be authentic, yeah. That you can't just say, spew these things because people will ask you questions. They're gonna ask you, like, they're gonna, well, how do you wanna do this? What problems do you, those are some of the questions I got. What problems do you perceive coming up when you implement? Because the things that I was saying sounded ludicrous. Like, I'm not going to lie, because I have big dreams. <laughs> so so if, I, if I'm out there making these bold claims of what I want to do, they're going to want to know how, like, am I talking like foolishness? Or like, how is she going to do it if she has all these claims? And I, you know, went through it step by step, how I wanted to do it, why I wanted to do it, the problems that I perceive coming up, the solutions that will, you have to put in place, and where this will potentially go and how this will benefit you, how this will benefit the community and how this will benefit the next generation. You know, you have, like for me, it was like big picture all the time. And that's what I kept throwing at them. And I think like those type of things, you have, again, for me, that was my niche. But as an international graduate, you have to find your niche. You have to find how you're going to package yourself. You're going to find that like, you have to sell yourself to them and how you're going to help this big help help them too because they're taking a chance on you at the end of the day you're an international graduate you're not going to stay there you have a visa i mean unless you have plans to stay there or other means of staying there fine but at the end of the day most places offer j1 which means that you have seven years and you go back to your country so they want to know that when they train you and you finish that you're going to affect you're going to make a change somewhere okay they want to know that their name behind you is going to make do great things that's why they're giving you a chance. And that's why, you know, you have to, again, find how you're going to work that into who you are and what you want. 
and real and also you have to be very honest with yourself if that is what you want if that's what you if you want to stay in the US if you want to leave if you like what do you actually want to do after everybody is going to get trained you know it's like if you as in they're looking at everyone is going to be from their perspective they're going to train people at the end of the day they're going to have four residents who are finished and trained and they'll go out there more so what else are you bringing what else are you giving back yeah i mean i think you've you've basically laid it out for us and everybody listening, I know you can take a take-home point or two or three or four, because I took several from Dr. McDowell's story. There's just so many highlights that I feel like these are not the things you hear on a daily basis. On the most part, they say, yeah, score this and, and do this. It's almost robotic. But we forget that we're interacting with humans who have clinical interests and who also want to change the world as much as we do. And sometimes it just comes boils down to really being passionate and driven and having a goal that ties in with the goals of the people that want to train you. And really, I find that that's really one of the key points you're sharing with us is networking goes a long way, how you network goes a long way, with whom you network goes a long way. And I am just can network is really what I'm hearing. There's There should be no limitation or any sensation of a limitation to networking because we're IMG. So I really thank you for you know, coming on the podcast and sharing these details of your life with us. Today on Instagram, we both posted about this, asking for questions from people that follow us or students that follow us, if they have questions regarding ophthalmology. So I have a few that we'll just do rapid fire on. If you have a few more minutes, we can run through these. First rapid fire question, what should I do to improve my CV if I'm interested in ophthalmology? This is from Alicia Franco. Okay. So I kind of went through the generic stuff, uh, research. You is what's it, should she say ophthalmology specifically or just in general? In general, but I believe she's interested in ophthalmology because she wanted to also know what states were IMG friendly for opto, and she wanted to know how many years it took to train in opto. And then the next question was regarding how to get research in opto and how to improve the CV. So I'm assuming she's interested in ophthalmology. Yeah, she's definitely interested. All right. So the first question, um, how do you improve your CV? So honestly, I <laughs> I wouldn't I only knew this because I spoke to people on the interview trail, what they had on their CV. People have a lot of research. They start research from early. I think they start in like MS one and two. Like also you have to start very early to find your mentor and get into research because people can do that. I think like obviously you can do a case report or a case study. But you really want to get into the bigger projects where even if it's a institutional study or, you know, cross whatever, those are the type of studies you want to get into because those actually, and I, I stress actually because everybody puts on research and they just want to have your name, but those actually impact evidence-based medicine. Like you want to get on something that people will want to ask you more about. So not just any research, but things that would actually change treatment plans or management, whatever the case may be. Apart from research scores, I mean, that's obviously the first thing. Now I'm not, you know, obviously being step one is not graded. That would change. Um, but I still think that, I'm being very honest, that the programs are going to look at scores, hands down. Uh, you know, when I called around, they, they asked me, well, what's your score? Did you get a 250? And I was like, no. And they said, oh, well, you know, you're not going to get an interview. And that was it. So I'm just going to be very honest with you. Like you, the score is important. There are programs who will you know, want those scores and I'm sure they're probably going to look at step two as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, again, there's people, the programs where they take a chance on you. So that's one thing, scores. The other thing is, of course, 
Um, I know here in the U.S. it's a bit different. So they have like all these humanitarian awards and these these um, I don't know like these programs and stuff that you can kind of get into whether it's like women in medicine or like the alpha omega humanitarian, whatever the case might be, you look at that as well, but it's like a minor detail. I think because most U.S. grads have that. I didn't have it because I'm not a U.S. grad. So all those kind of like, I don't know, I didn't have any of it. Clearly it wasn't that big a deal. Other things for the CV, of course. Uh, for me, I had work experience being an international graduate. So they did find that interesting. So if you do have work experience, don't be shy. Uh, just make sure that it's a genuine work experience because they will ask you about it. But that is something that you could, you know, it does help with your situation. For me, because I went and worked at Jackson Memorial in Miami, that added to my the strength of my CV because then it gave me a name. Like I said, my my route was very non-traditional. It's not something. It's obviously a, a risk that you take because you only have one year guaranteed, and that's one year out of your your visa. And um, once you start working, you can't go back to doing a research position. So take that with a grain of salt. But what it did do is give me a name behind my back as well. So now it's like, oh, she works with the University of Miami. Now they can put me in a category. So if you do have work experience or you find yourself in that situation, feel free to, that, that does help. I think, and of course, writing a good personal statement. Some places don't stress it that much. Some places will say, oh, that's a really interesting personal statement. I think that is, it's just, it can be a little difficult. I didn't know. I don't. I don't know if my personal thing was good or bad. I, I was just. I just wrote down what I thought, <laughs> like why I did what I did, and just kind of hope for the best. I got. I did get questions about it. Like I put down even on my CV. I put down that I, I did bodybuilding. I did weightlifting. I've placed uh, second twice, first in one of my competitions. So a lot of people ask about that. So I think like adding things like that to your CV does give you a lot of, gen- like generates a lot of talk. And it also makes them hold on to it. You, they remember, because they're going through tons of these applications. So they remember those little things. I think almost everybody who I interviewed with asked me, how much weight do I lift? Or, you know, I remember one of the directors asked for to see a picture. And I was like, oh, I don't know about all that. But, <laughs> you know, but you want something on your CV that stands out. So your hobbies, whatever they might be, just make sure that they're actually genuine and real, because they will ask you about it. I remember one of them asked me, how much do I lift on my leg press? And after I told him I did 900 pounds, he's like, you're hired. That was it. I mean, I'm not joking. That's actually how I, this is how my, my, um, my interview for surgery went. And he was just like, okay, you know how to work hard. We like you. You're in, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, like those things that we tend to look over, put them on there. I think that's, that's mostly the generic stuff. Mostly application is, you know, you know, past experiences and so on. So, but the things that I'm talking about, the things that we tend to overlook, what I overlook, because I didn't put them on at first. So here we go. Research positions. So there are programs that do offer a research fellowship. I did not get a chance to look up like much of them, but I know, for instance, Baskin Palmer does for sure. Um, as I mentioned, they do have an unpaid, because I looked into it as well, they do have an unpaid research fellowship for two years, which you do basic science work in the lab. And of course, you produce these, you produce your studies and so on. And then you also, because you're at Baskin Palmer, if you could find someone who, like, there's it's the number one program. So if you do find someone who you can find a mentor with, then they'll probably let you into the OR or let you into clinic, even though you, you can't. You probably as an, you'd have to do it as an observer and so on. But it gives you the opportunity to meet people and as well as to shine, and also just be plugged into ophthalmology and keep your appetite in it. So. I think that's definitely one to look into. 
I don't think many places, I know maybe a few programs in New York do offer the research fellowships, but not, I don't, like research fellowships are very, very hard to come by in ophthalmology. And I think if you're going to do one, I think you should definitely do it at a very highly ranked program. So that's why I say Boston Palmer. Wills might have one as well. They're number two. I think that's all it was. I don't want to mislead anyone. So I would say look into the top programs first and then see if they have it. Because quite a few do it. Like I think maybe Utah, University of Utah has it as well. So those are a few. What was the other question? <laughs> so yes, uh, they wanted to know, this other person, Haja Raziz. She wants to know, can I apply directly into ophthalmology after step one in CK? Does ophthalmology participate in NRMP? So I guess maybe walk her through the the ophthalmology application cycle. Okay, so the other thing I actually want to mention is that there actually were programs who did offer like a pre, I guess, pre-residency position. So one of them was, um, it evades me right now. It's a new program in Massachusetts. It'll come back to me. But you can also look on, if you do do a step one, you are eligible to go on to the SF match because it is, it is a separate match, the NRMP. And they do offer pre-residency positions for like a year where you do research. So if you are looking for it, that's, I should have said that before, but if you are looking for a research year or a pre-residency year, you can actually, once you do your step one, you are eligible for doing it. And once you register with the SF match, and it's the same process as going through the match, where you do that, where you register, and you have to keep looking and updating because they come up. But I remember I, I wanted to do one of those positions last year, or 2018, somewhere around there, because they opened up a few of those. And you have to, again, know who they are. So I actually ended up meeting the program director at the conference, and I asked her about it. And she said, basically, even though they post it on the SF match, that they have people in mind already. So because I met her in the 2019 conference, she said, well, I can apply for that pre-match position for the 2020 year. But obviously at that point, I'm eligible for doing the actual residency. So it would have made sense for me. But that's just something to keep your eyes on because it's, there are a lot of little, I don't know, notes and crannies that we don't explore. And the other thing I also want to say um, adjacent to that point is that because, for instance, for me, because I've done a PGY one year, I'm eligible for going into an advanced program. And so if I register for the SF match, if I didn't match this year and I registered for the SF match and a few positions have come up, um, I remember Brookdale offered like a few, pr- few programs, but I remember Brookdale for sure, or SUNY downstate in New York. And New York programs are also very IMG friendly. That's the other thing. They opened up a PGY2 position. So I could have slid into that position right away. I wouldn't, because ophthalmology is an advanced match. You, had, you match like two years before, basically. And so I, could, I would have been able to start immediately. So if, if that did pop up, like if you're in a situation like me, that is definitely a pro. <laughs> you can slide into those positions. But yes, definitely if you do a step one, you, you're eligible to, to, you know, to match. They obviously need to have your step two before they can offer you a position because you have to have done completed a step two before. But to actually start the registration matching process, um, you can go ahead and you, they, they look for your step two, I think, just before, like around interview season, because most people, that's when they'll be coming in. I'm not sure if they make a decision based off the step two or how they're going to change it based, like based on the fact that step one is no longer scored. That might have a role to play. And I, I genuinely, and I, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here to say this, but I genuinely think that they're still going to look at scores. Ophthalmology is very, they look at scores. <laughs> and what was the, there was another part to that question. Yeah, so I think if you don't mind, my assumption is this person wanted to understand the ophthalmology match as well. 
So for example, let's use an arbitrary year, someone that's interested in ophthalmology that's just starting out with their process and they're going to apply, say, this September. Can you walk them through, because you said it's an advanced match. I understand what that means, but a lot of IMGs may not fully understand what it takes to match into opto. Yeah, so I didn't understand that either, so you're absolutely right. I was like, what do you mean I have to wait a whole year before I can actually start ophthalmology? So that's exactly what it is. So if you're an MS4 right now, applying for the 20, you'll be applying for the 2022 cycle, basically. This is 2020 and you're applying for the 2022 cycle because ophthalmology is an advanced match. And when I say an advanced match, it means that you have to complete a preliminary year as a PGY one year before you actually start ophthalmology. So your PGY one year, most of the time, it doesn't really matter. Most people do like a transitional year or medicine year or, you know, something like that, where it actually has some application to ophthalmology and you can choose any institution. So as it stands this year, this previous year, they're cha- they might be changing it for 2022, actually. 2022 is when they're actually supposed to have the prelim year integrated with the categorical year. But some institutions have been slow to do that. My program has integrated already, which is why I have to do this medicine year. But some institutions have not integrated it yet. So you might find yourself in a position where it is integrated or isn't. So if it is not integrated, as in this is a traditional way of matching into ophthalmology, you will have to match separately through the NRMP into a transitional year, a medicine year, a PZ year, a surgery year as a PGY1 prelim year with a set year date. That's it. You can do it in Hawaii. You can do it in New York. You can do it in California. It doesn't really matter where you do it. It's just as long as it's a prerequisite before starting ophthalmology. And ophthalmology, you start in your PGY2 year. You start as a PGY2 and let's say you matched into, uh, okay, let's say you matched into Mount Sinai. It is separate and apart from that PGY1 year. It's just that PGY1 year is just a prerequisite. So it doesn't matter which field you do it in. You just have to do something, essentially. If they do it in this new way, Now, so this program I'm in, for instance, they actually started early. So they integrated it before the set time, which is 2022. So everyone who's applying this year, this is more than likely what is going to be happening. You have to apply. You're going to apply through everything through the SF match because now they're integrated in. They are safe positions in medicine or transitional or whatever the case might be for PGY1 ophthalmology categorical residents. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're integrating the PGY one year with ophthalmology. So you get more time to actually do ophthalmology as opposed to just doing another specialty. So more than likely, that is what it's going to be. But it's all through the SF match. So it does make life a lot easier because as opposed to before, most people had to apply through NRMP and as well as SF match. And they had to do two interviews. You can imagine you're flying out to, it's very expensive, you're flying out to all these different places for ortho. And they are flying out to all these different places for medicine or transitional or whatever the case might be. And it's very, in terms of how you, because remember, there's only so many days you have. Most of the interviews are on the same day. Choose your interviews wisely. So if you have, if you're interviewing for medicine and you're interviewing for all, you have to choose which places you want to go to. And it's harder to juggle all of that. And plus, it's also very expensive. So this is actually better. It's more beneficial. And you can also, it gives you more time to actually settle in. As opposed, unless, you know, in some ways you can go and stay with your, in your hometown for a year before you go into med, into ortho, but it's still, it's, you know, it's still nice to actually have settled and ready for your categorical year before you actually start your categor- categorical year. 
So that's kind of how it works now. But again, you have to pay attention to each program and see how they're listing it because it's not clear yet how they're going to do it. But it's supposed to be this year for the 2022 cycle where it's integrated. Wow. Thanks for that detailed information. I think that's going to be very helpful for everyone listening. I'm looking through the questions now to see if there were any other questions that you hadn't already answered. Because a lot of these questions that came in, guys, if you were listening intently, you'll realize you already answered most of them. Because one question we got was how to find a mentor or a sponsor as an IMG. And that was from Cynthia 12. And I think you spend a lot of time just sharing with us how your mentor turned sponsor ended up being a great relationship that you credit a lot of your success to as well. So I think that was plenty of information there, unless you have some additional tips to add. I think that um, in terms of finding, again, I did not, I'm not the well, I I don't have the wealth of knowledge for mentorship simply because this is a completely new concept to me. Um, So my perspective of mentorship is someone who, for me, I saw like the way how she saw herself in me, I saw myself in her. And like that, it was just, and it just so happened, she also, she happened to be in a really good position in the program and she had a lot of connections, but typically what people do is find someone who has a lot of connections already. So usually people go for like a chair or a program director, or, you know, just someone who's very well known in the field first, like they do their research and say, I like this person and they go for it. The truth is, is it's honestly a relationship. Like (laughs) you can't say, and I know people who do this because I, even for my mentor, she told me about the the people who would come to her and they just didn't click and she just was like, I'm not going to you know, sponsor this person. So you also have to take that into consideration too. It is genuinely a relationship that you need to foster and you have to be genuine because they need to know you inside and out. Like they need to sell that story for you. Right. Absolutely. I think honestly, that's a very huge component that people overlook. Yes. Having connections is one thing, but trust me, opto is a very small field. If they don't, if they're, if your mentor really believes in you, if they can't do it, they will find someone else who can and sell you to them. So I think having the relationship is a very, 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 very important factor. Connections are important too. Absolutely agree a hundred percent. So before we let you go, can you tell us your mantra for success and how we can learn from it? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I think honestly, and I feel like I'm like you know, just saying the same thing over again. But for me, it's just, I've never questioned myself of if I can do something. I've never doubted. Well, I would say like for me, the biggest doubt and fear I had was for the step one, hands down. Like, I think that was probably my, for me, what I consider my weakest moment. I walked out that exam. I, I actually walked out that exam. But apart from that, I think that you have to go in there thinking that you're not going to fail. Even when I walked to the exam, I wasn't afraid of failing. I was afraid of just not doing as well as I wanted, which in my head was failure. But regardless, you have to go in there thinking like, I got this. Like, I am who I am. There's a reason why I'm doing this. And people are going to see that. You need to believe in yourself and have that confidence to make people believe in you as well. Um, And just, yeah, believe in yourself and don't think you're going to fail. (laughs) thank you so much dr dowell we really appreciate your time coming on the podcast and teaching us some imgs are going to want to get in contact with you where can they find you on the internet so you know instagram is a great place so you can definitely find me at dr.bajanbeautyfit underscore fit i have an email listed there as well and i'm thinking about setting up a phone number because I, i do get a lot of questions and sometimes it's hard i'll just kind of send a voice note or something like that so 
definitely reach out to me. Trust me. I understand the struggle. I've been there. <laughs> and I definitely empathize with you. So feel free to ask me any questions. Um, I'm an open book. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me.